Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. My name is Venomrata. I work as a product manager and chief of staff at Thumbtack, and today I'm here to tell you about monetization and how you should think about monetizing your products. So uh, to get started, I wanted to give you a little bit of a roadmap of what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to start off by just like talking through like what is monetization when we talk about it and talk through like a very basic framework of at least how I like to think of it. And then I wanted to walk through a couple case studies from my past experience, both at Google and also working at Thumbtack. So fun fact about me, I actually spent a lot of time growing up all over the world. I was born in India and then I moved to Saudi Arabia, New Zealand and moved around a bunch in the United States before settling at Stanford, which is where I got my undergraduate degree in computer science. After Stanford, I uh, worked at Google as an associate product manager. I worked on two different teams when I was there. Um, the first team was the emerging markets team, so basically the team that builds new Google products for emerging markets. And the second team was the Chrome Web Platform team. So this is the team that basically is pushing for uh, just having a healthier web ecosystem. And I was working on developer tools for developers who develop for the web. And now I work at Thumbtack. So how many of you have heard of Thumbtack before? Oh, this is really cool, awesome. Uh, so Thumbtack, for those of you who don't know it, is a local services marketplace. Essentially, you can go to Thumbtack and search for any kind of local professional in your area, whether it's you know a handyman or like a DJ or a wedding caterer or whatnot. Um, I spent my first six months there working on our monetization team, and I'll be talking a little bit more about that later today. And then after that, um, the team I'm currently on is our ranking team. So essentially, if you think of Thumbtack as a search engine for local professionals, it's a team that takes in whatever query the customer types in, translates that to a list of pros, and then ranks that list of pros accordingly. So it's the team I work on. Um, as mentioned also, I work as a chief of staff in my, like, 50, 30%, whatever capacity to our head of product. So if you're curious about what it is like being a chief of staff or how do I do two jobs at once, um, feel free to uh, ask me in the Q&A, but I won't be going too much into that for the purposes of the presentation. So let's get to the content. Uh, what is monetization? Simply put, monetization is figuring out how much you should charge for using your product and who you should be charging for. And ideally, you're charging for some kind of value that you're generating through your product. And I like to think of like three different stages towards figuring out like a successful monetization model for your product. So the first stage is uh, product market fit. And I think it's a term that probably a lot of us have heard before. Essentially what it means is you find a market, basically a set of users that want to use your product, and then there's a fit in the sense that the product is actually solving the problem that, these, that you've identified for the set of users. So I like to break this down into like three specific steps that I think if you can answer the question to or validate your hypothesis or assumption for, you've kind of found product market fit in a way. So the first one is around like, is there a big enough need? So this is like the market that you're going after, is this a big enough market? I think oftentimes when we think about 
solving specific problems. We think that, oh, you know, just because it's a problem for me, that means that it must be a problem for other people, or that, oh, this problem definitely exists, and, and like, people are motivated enough to like, go spend their time like, trying out your solution or even looking out for your solution. And sometimes the answer to that is no. So making sure that you've done your homework to understand that like, this is a need that's big enough that would compel someone to go out and actually you know, look for your product or try out your product um, is like a pretty big assumption that you should try to validate. So the second one is uh, why should people use your product to fulfill that need? Assuming that you have identified a need that people care enough about. And this is often called like your value prop or your value proposition as a product. So for some people, this could be like, oh, I am the only product that, that solves this particular problem. Or I do it in a way that is cheaper or that is faster or that is more intuitive to use. Whatever that value proposition is, make sure you're like identifying that early on. So assuming that you, know, you have a need, you found your value proposition, the next step is around like, is this value prop real for the customer that you're going after? So essentially validating your value prop for that particular market. One way that you could try to validate your value prop, and this kind of goes into the next step of monetization, is uh, charging people for it. So basically saying like, oh, I have this like, cool new thing. It's a lot faster. It's a lot easier to use. But you have to pay 10 bucks a month to use it. Um, and that's a really easy way to know that like, if people are willing to exchange value for the value that you're generating, um, and therefore like answering this question essentially. So that's step one of product market fit. Um, the next step is essentially like starting to charge money for whatever product you've built once you've found product market fit. Now, one thing that to note about this is step one and step two are kind of interlinked in a lot of ways. And this actually happened to us at Thumbtack, which was, you know, as we were expanding into like a different stage for, of, of the growth for the company and we had different set of business goals, we would often, it would often require us to either change the monetization model or change the way that we were like charging pros, or it would require us to like change the product fundamentally. Um, so step one and step two, we, I, I'm like cleanly differentiating the two, but I think in actual product development, they're, they're actually quite interlinked. So once you've figured out like some kind of business model, you, you found like your product market fit, the next step is to basically scalably grow the business, AKA print money. Um, and I think this step is also uh, a place where you might have to go back to step one and two, depending upon whether your product is actually able to, and the monetization strategy you've chosen for yourself are actually able to achieve whatever business goals that you've set out for yourself as a business. So now I wanna go to the case studies because I think this is like where the meat of the learning is at. And I want to start off by uh, first saying that these are my opinions, not of Google's and Thumbtacks, legal disclosure. Um, legal disclosure over. Um, I want to start off by talking about one of the products I worked on when I was at Google called Google Station. So Google Station is a, uh, how many of you have heard of Google Station? I bet like no one has, that's fine. Um, it's not a product built for uh, San Francisco tech people. Um, so the uh, Google Station is a project at Google where we basically partnered with local internet service providers in emerging markets and basically provide fast, you know, free, affordable Wi-Fi. And the reason why we do this, why Google has invested in a project like this, is because what we discovered was a lot of our growth was coming from emerging markets, countries like India, Indonesia, and Brazil. And one of the reasons why, uh, one, one of the reasons that was impeding our growth was the lack of affordable access to internet. People couldn't come online, and so people can't come online, they can't use search, they can't use search, we don't make money. So that's essentially the reason why Google was invested in building out this product. And so um, 
there's a couple lessons that we learned as a result of building this out that pertain more to our business and modernization strategy. So the first one is that Wi-Fi as a business is actually pretty hard to be profitable for. And you can kind of intuitively guess why. If you're gonna like provide Wi-Fi to people, you need a lot of capital investment. You need routers, cables, licenses. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it requires a lot of investment in order to go in and, uh, and operate the business. Now, as Google, we were able to kind of get around it because we would partner with these internet service providers that had all of this infrastructure in place. Um, so we were just kind of providing a software solution on top. But for a lot of these companies that we would partner with, they wanted us to prove a business case before, we would, before they would actually agree to work with us. They're like, tell us how you're gonna make us money. And so our answer usually was, um, basically putting ads on the captive portal. So the captive portal, for those of you who are not aware, is uh, anytime you go to a public Wi-Fi place and you're trying to log in on your phone or your computer, it's like the screen that pops up that says, hey, like, accept our terms of service, give us your phone number, give us your email, whatever. And so basically by placing ads there, that was essentially the way that we were gonna make money and the way the partner was gonna make money. Um, but because we didn't have to, uh, we didn't have necessarily the capital expenditure, it was a lot easier for us to convince ourselves that this would be a profitable deal for us. But for partners, it was really hard because they had all these like other expenses that they needed to worry about. Um, so that made it a little hard as a business model for us to uh, go in and capitalize on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the rise of mobile data. So one thing that was interesting was when we were first starting this project, access to internet was really challenging for a lot of the consumers that we were targeting. But there were a lot of like interesting like macroeconomic trends happening during the same time. Specifically in India, um, there was a rise of this company called uh, Geo. Um, for those of you who are not aware, this is a uh, new like telco operator that was started a couple years ago by Reliance Industries, which is one of the biggest conglomerates uh, companies in India. And uh, they were basically like, they had spent a bunch of time like creating all this new infrastructure, laying new cables, um, new satellites and whatever. And they had, they had just basically created this like really fast and, and, they were and when they started, they were giving out data for free, essentially. And when we first heard about this, we were like, oh, like how is this sustainable? Like at some point they're gonna have to start charging for it. So like maybe once they start charging for it, people are no longer gonna use it. And we were completely wrong. And so I think one of the things that um, we didn't take into account, and this is like the first lesson that I would say is that make sure that you're keeping up to date with your market trends because they can severely impact your business model. So one concrete example that I'll give about how geo impacted our business model is going back to the first point about how it's really hard to prove a profitable business case for a lot of these internet service providers we would work with. Um, one of the options that we were exploring was like, what if we like charge people for Wi-Fi, right? Um, but when we have competitors like Reliance Geo that are giving out Wi-Fi that's really cheap, Wi-Fi that, uh, or internet that people can use anywhere versus public Wi-Fi that requires you to be in certain locations in order to use it, that became like a really hard product for us to go out and sell. And therefore that made the whole uh, problem of proving that this, uh, th this deal was profitable for our partners, that that problem became even harder. So. This is like kind of like an important lesson that I want to emphasize. So the next lesson um, is around prioritizing depth versus breadth. So by that, I specifically mean like 
if you are like the lead for Google Station, you have this like existential question that you need to answer, which is around like, do you just go into a bunch of different countries and do deployments there? Or do you go really deep in one country and then just try to like, I don't know, launch like thousands and thousands of Wi-Fi hotspots? Um, but our unit economics are really challenging because not only do we have to uh, go in and prove to all these different partners that like, hey, like this is how we're actually gonna make you money. And every country's like data and Wi-Fi landscape is completely different. But even from a product perspective, like going into a new country is not, uh, it's not cheap because it requires you to go in and understand the users. It requires you to go in and make sure that the product that you have actually works within those markets, which is not a trivial investment for you to make. So uh, because of those reasons, uh, it can be really hard to, uh, the, the unit economics you have, the monetization model you choose, can make it really hard for you to understand depth versus breadth. I think on Google Station, we kind of, when I was on the team, we kind of chose both. We were interested in going to a bunch of different countries and also trying to go deep within those countries, whereas perhaps going deep within one market and just like really making sure we were owning that market could have been a better strategy for us looking back. So, I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about Thumbtack. So as I mentioned before, um, Thumbtack is essentially a search engine for local professionals. You can go there, type in personal trainer, see a bunch of personal trainers, find a personal trainer you like, and contact them and hopefully hire them for whatever job it is that you want to get done. So uh, Thumbtack's business model is actually very interesting. We've taken a bunch of different uh, twists and turns towards getting to this point, but the place we're at now is what we call pay per contact. So what this basically means is anytime you as a customer decide to contact a professional, we charge that professional for that contact. So you can kind of think of it as a lead gen business model. Um, we used to be in a world where uh, it was called pay per quote. In this world, essentially, the, uh, the time that we would charge the pro would be whenever, uh, so essentially you as a customer would submit a job and then the pro would decide, hey, like actually I want this job, I want to quote on it, and they would quote on it. And any time the customer opened and viewed the, uh, viewed the pro's quote is when we would charge the pro for that quote. Um, and the reason why we moved away from paper quote to paper contact is, uh, is kind of, the, the main reason is we wanted to make sure that the charge point, so the place, the time at which we decided to charge the pro was aligned with what we felt like was the value that we were providing as a platform. And the value that we really provide to pros is getting them hired. Like ultimately that's the whole point of the marketplace, that's the whole point of the company. And quoting is like super up the funnel where it, at that point like, you know, some customers might see the quote and then decide not to move forward or like pros can quote on like, you know, tens and 20 and 30 and 40 jobs and just like never end up getting any customer contact. Versus with customer contact, there's more an intent of like, oh, I looked at your profile, I saw, you know, I, I see all the things that you do, I looked at your reviews and actually like I'm interested in reaching out to you and like wanna work with you. So it's a higher intent action and it's more aligned with the value that we provide to the pro as like get in terms of getting hired. So as kind of a side exercise, I thought it would be interesting to see like some other business models that we could do, but reasons why we're probably not gonna do them. So the first one is around, and this is actually something our pros ask about all the time, is like having customers pay. They say something like, you know, like why do I have to pay? Why can't customers pay to look at my information? And there's kind of two reasons why I think that this wouldn't work. So the first one is, um, you look at any of your competitors, 
they don't charge customers to look at pros. So as a customer, if I land on the site and they're like, well, you got to pay like five bucks to go search for a bunch of pros, you're like, well, I can just go to Handy or I could go to HomeAdvisor and I'm able to see pros for free. So like, why should I use your product instead? So it's really hard to convince customers if uh, the industry standard is not to do that. But um, the second thing is that we are actually reducing the size of jobs on our platform. And if our ultimate goal is to uh, have the most amount of jobs done and uh, to get pros hired, this is kind of an antithetical way towards getting there because uh, you're basically artificially reducing the number of jobs that you have on the platform because some customers are going to pay and others are going to leave. So uh, that's one business model. The other one is a subscription model, which is also something our pros talk about. They say like, hey, like, why don't I just pay you 20 bucks a month and you just send me whatever leads you have and then you know, it'll be great. Um, and the reason why this business model also doesn't work is for the same reason that the paper quote model didn't work. And that was primarily because, uh, again, we wanna make sure that the charge point is aligned with the value that we're giving uh, to our customers on the platform. And in a subscription model, you'd have the same issue of like, you know, some pros, perhaps the pros that are, you know, in the top three or five positions are going to see a ton of business because, uh, you know, they're in that position and uh, let's say they're paying 20 bucks a month. So their ROI is going to be off the charts. And then there's going to be some pros, maybe pros who never show up, who are still going to pay this 20 bucks a month, but they're going to get nothing in return for it. So you have this like extremely unequal distribution of ROI for the pros on your platform. Um, and we wanted to move towards a model where like, if we're charging you, like we are delivering some value to you and we wanna make sure that like you have some ROI for putting in that investment. Um, so this model doesn't really get us towards that. So uh, now I wanna talk a little bit about what I did on the monetization team and what I learned. So uh, when I was on the monetization team, we had switched towards this paper contact world. We had just made the transition. So that was like July of 2018. Um, and we were in the process of moving towards, so there were two things that um, I was helping the team with. So the first one was around, uh, we wanted to have a uh, infrastructure around the way we set prices. We used to set them very manually. People would go into a spreadsheet and kind of like put some stuff in. And we wanted to make sure that we were doing this in like a very principled approach um, because we were getting to the point where like this was just not sustainable if a price, if like, you know, some pro reports that this price is whack, then like we had no idea of like how, you know, it was really hard for us to like go in and understand like what was wrong in our system in order to like debug that issue. And we were seeing a lot of outlier prices as a result of it. So we just wanted to make sure we were thinking through a principled and reasoned approach so we can go back and fix it. The second one was around just explaining to pros the value that we were giving to them as a platform and explaining to them the prices they were paying, why they were paying for this, what they were getting out of it. So doing a lot of pricing education for pros. Um, so this is actually a photo of a cake we had to celebrate once we shipped our initial version of like our first set of principled prices called base prices. Um, so uh, now I'm gonna talk through two lessons I learned through working on these kind of uh, two buckets of projects. So the first lesson I learned was around the psychology of price. So one thing I didn't mention was as we moved from this like paper quote world when pros were charged anytime a customer viewed their quote to this like paper contact world where pros were charged whenever a customer contacted them, we 
actually changed the prices and specifically we increased the prices because we felt like we were delivering more value to the pro. So it made sense that we wanted to keep the value we were delivering at what we were charging proportional. But and in our mind, it wasn't something that, it wasn't like a price increase in the sense that we were increasing prices but giving the same value. It was that we were just readjusting prices to account for the value that we were now delivering to the pro. But to the pros, it came across as a price increase. They were like, I used to pay five bucks for this. Why am I paying $8 now? Which is like a super real concern. Um, and it's not something that we did a really good job of taking into account. So this is like an interesting dynamic as you think of modernization is like, how much do you think about you know, your, the, the business goals and the, the principled pricing approach versus like the real human impact of like, people have to pay this money and sometimes they think it's too much and sometimes they think it's too little. Um, so that's an interesting point to think about. The other one is that the infrastructure you have for your modernization will change as the company grows. This one is pretty true across like any kind of product development concept. It's like you're in the beginning, your infra is like very hacky and you're just trying to get things off the ground. And then as the company grows, you're like, well, we should do this probably the right way. And you go back and you, and you, and you fix it the right way. Um, and so on the modernization team, we went through a similar experience where initially our prices were in these spreadsheets and we would manually go and change parameters anytime we wanted to update them. And now, you know, just very recently, we're moving towards a more principled like market, market setting approach that I think will get us to, um, get us to a better place. So that's all the content I had. Uh, thanks for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.